Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. One of the most surprising discoveries I made while working on my master's thesis in the mid-1990s was how often the future English professors of America showed up to discuss books in class that they hadn't finished reading. Cynically, I started to think that not reading the books was actually an advantage when discussing them. It was easier to twist a novel to fit your theoretical framework if you didn't know what it was about. That experience has left me reluctant to do exactly what Cameron and I are about to do in this episode, discuss a book that neither of us has read. By the end of the episode, though, I hope you'll see why we simply couldn't wait to tackle Christopher Watkins' book, Biblical Critical Theory. In our last episode, Cameron and I discussed a book that he's read twice and that I didn't even finish. I only got 50 pages in. We thought we'd change things up in this episode and discuss a book that neither of us has read. Uh, Fortunately, we have both gotten at least as far as through the introduction and a little way in. But this is definitely a conversation that we're going to have with our, our books in our laps. And we're not going to give you the final word on this book by any stretch of the imagination, but hopefully we will be able to capture a little bit of the, the, can I say excitement that we feel about this book. So the book we're talking about is Christopher Watkins' book, Biblical Critical Theory. Uh, The subtitle is How the Bible's Unfolding Story Makes Sense of Modern Life and Culture. I have a couple of funny stories. I don't know if they're funny, actually, but a couple of stories about this book that I will share. Uh, First of all, I was asked very recently by one of our listeners if we were ever going to do anything with this book. And she said to me, like, have you heard of the book? And I said, yes. And she said, I assumed that you would have because the foreword was by Tim Keller. (laughs) And so I think the assumption was anything that Tim Keller had blurbed or written a forward to, I would be down with. And, and apparently that's true because in this case he did write the forward and, and I'm definitely excited about the book. Um, the other anecdote is, and this is more, I guess like a, a pro tip for people who are reading. Uh, I got this book um, thanks to Westminster books they sent out an email and i read the email i i was about to go into a meeting i thought this looks interesting i ordered a copy and then i had to wait a little bit for the other person i was meeting to show up i got nervous and thought well maybe i'll need more than one copy so i ordered another copy and then i got a notification that they were back ordered so i went on amazon and i ordered a third copy and all three copies subsequently came in. And so that's how excited I was about the book. I took it with me on a couple of plane rides with my pencil in hand. And this is where the the pro tip comes in. Uh, It is not helpful to underline everything on every page. It turns out, even though it feels like it's the right thing to do in the moment, that when you go back and you try to pick out the important stuff, emphasizing everything emphasizes nothing. Exactly. 
So when I look at the introduction here to biblical critical theory, I have underlined way too much stuff. Hmm. So Cameron, you're going to have to help me out here. And uh, maybe together we can try to figure out a little bit how to talk about what's this book about and, and why is it so interesting? Yes. Well, I have not underlined everything, but I've underlined a few things. So let's see what we can do with this introduction. I think Dr. Watkin here is he's adding to the discussion about worldview, Mm -hmm. which is something you're familiar with. Yeah. But he seems to be trying to almost take a, a more meta view of even that whole discussion with this book. And he has a few things to say about the idea of worldview at the beginning here. Not that worldview thinking is, is flawed necessarily, but that he wants to add a new perspective. Yeah. Now, one of the things that a lot of people ask whenever I mention this book has to do with the title Mm. and they're usually okay with the word biblical, but the words that come after that give them pause, uh, critical theory, Mm. because there's a lot of, uh, concern, let's say about critical theory in the news these days. So, um, what, what's that all about? I mean, what, what it, why is this book called Biblical Critical Theory in the first place? So he uses the example of Augustine's City of God. And I think this is a really good example. So in the City of God, Augustine does essentially two things. He, does, he has two moves. The first is to work his way inside of the myths and the beliefs of pagan Rome and unmask them show them to be flawed, ridiculous by their own standards. Even that's the first move. The second move is to show how the story of the Bible fulfills and yeah, I guess fulfills the longings that those pagan myths were pointing towards. So I think the, the critical theory part is about, there's a kind of deconstruction. So he wants to do that work, like what Augustine was doing with Rome. He wants to do that work with our contemporary Western culture with the Bible. So I think he wants to get inside of our culture and to start unmasking things and then to point towards the story of scripture as a unifying narrative which in a way is what all critical theories are trying to do right right? they involve a critique of the world Mm -hmm. and will at least suggest some sort of way of reforming or writing Mm -hmm. the the things that are being critiqued if you've ever listened to the series of lectures that Tim Keller did with Edmund Clowney on preaching in a postmodern world. There's a, a thing that Keller says, and I've heard him say it in, in more or less the same way in, in several different places, but it, it has to do with deconstruction uh, in the classic sense, not deconstruction like social media now as a sort of a uh, dismantling the, the faith that I was, you know, given, you know, as a young person or something, but, but deconstruction, like the, the Derrida deconstruction, right. Postmodern, you know, postmodern deconstruction. Yeah. Um, that 
Keller would often observe that although people had attempted to use um, you know, their various theories or, or forms of knowledge to deconstruct Scripture, that in fact Christianity was this uh, ultimate expression of, of reality that, that could deconstruct everything else. So he, in a sense, encouraged embracing the idea of deconstruction and was just suggesting using a better theory, let's say, to accomplish that work, a better tool to accomplish that work. And so what makes me excited about this book is I feel like this is the first example I can think of, of essentially fulfilling that suggestion, right? Where someone is actually sitting down, putting on their critical theory hat and, and attempting to do what Keller says can be done, which is to deconstruct all of these sort of world theories, systems, in light of the Christian story and essentially, I I guess, right, yeah, recreate that Augustinian move. And um, I'm I'm excited about it. Yeah. No, me too. And I wanted to talk about a couple of specifics from the introduction that might help listeners get at what he's up to here. And the first is this idea of figures (laughs) yes so here's what i think he means by figures you can tell me if i'm wrong but essentially he wants us to see culture as a as a very big and expansive word so he wants culture not just to be like arts and music or fashion or this or that but he he wants to define culture in terms of a wide set of what he's calling figures and he lists six broad categories i'll just list them here so language ideas and stories time and space the structure of reality behavior relationships and objects and then he says this figures in each category shape our sense of ourselves and the world around us express that sense and transform over time as societies change. Together, they form what we might call the figuration total of a particular cultural moment. Now, do you think that's a helpful way or helpful way to think about culture? Or what is, what is he adding here? So I really do think it's helpful. Okay. Uh, I would totally understand if someone hearing that for the first time would say, no, that's the opposite of helpful. <laughs> I have yeah. no idea right. what you're talking about. But, but from the standpoint of talking about worldview, I think there's something really helpful about that. So uh, when he talks about figures or the process of figuration, maybe... A, a helpful way to think about that is the way we might talk about how we are formed by our culture, right? We talk a lot about the way that forces on the outside shape us and mold us, that sort of thing. And so he's trying to talk about those forces and the the ways that we are formed or shaped, but 
but figuring or figuration is is maybe a more elegant way of describing it right that it's 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 suggestive it's not necessarily determinative and it's not like a stamp you know cookie cutter kind of thing yeah. uh, there's something i always appreciated in worldview thinking that came from dr scott oliphant who when he gave his definition of worldviews emphasize the way in which individual worldviews are formed in reaction to the strictures and structures of the world around us. So that rather than thinking of ourselves as neutral thinkers who are just sort of forming opinions uh, under no pressure on various issues, he emphasized the way that worldviews are formed in reaction to uh, the world coming at you, right? The whatever the question of the moment is, and you're backed into a corner. You have to think about what what everyone is thinking about. And here, I think what Watkin does is take that and then make it a more useful concept. Like like to, he's starting to think about well, how does this work exactly? what are the areas that we can see this shaping taking place? And, and uh, it has some similarity to um, a, a pretty common thing in worldview books to try to identify, like what are the ultimate or basic questions? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a similar idea. Like he's trying to get at some sort of foundational structure so that we can start thinking about influences that shape us and where yeah. they come from and that sort of thing. But, uh, but it's, Again, just a little bit more um, sophisticated, yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's something I find really promising. As I say, mm-hmm. having not finished the book, I cannot yet tell what use he makes of it. Yeah. But it's, it's a page that uh, is heavily underlined in my copy. Yeah. And it's... it's uh, <laughs> So he says, each category of figures can say something about everything, but none of them can say everything about everything. <laughs> like you need this sort of network right. of forces taken into account in order to really start coming to, to grasp the way that we are sort of situated in and shaped by the world around us. Right. So then what he's going to want to do throughout the rest of these chapters is show how well, as he says here, this is page nine, the Bible has signature patterns and rhythms that repeat throughout its pages, which speak to these figures here. So he gives the idea of language, ideas, and stories. The biblical concepts, excuse me, concept of covenant or repeated narratives embodying the, f- the first shall be last motif or time, the rhythm of promise and fulfillment throughout scripture. So he's just saying that the way the Bible speaks to these things can inform our culture, like through, through these figures as kind of channels. Yeah. Okay. So let's try to flesh that out a little bit. So when I was in grad school and was first introduced to literary theory and sort of the way that you use these theories, uh, one of the things that surprised me was I just always thought, you know, the, the, the question was which theory is true. Yeah. You know, like you've got 10 different theories. I just want to know which one is the right one. And a professor of mine said, just choose the one that gives you the most interesting reading of the text. 
which at the time I kind of understood as like a capitulation to relativism. <laughs> you know, it was kind of a concession. None of our theories are true or something like that. But there was something in that in the sense that the theory wasn't the point or the theory was the, the pry bar to kind of open up the text. And so the ideas or figures that were part of the theory were tools that would allow you to better understand the thing you were trying to interpret. So what he's suggesting here is that in Scripture, you find these figures as well. There are these tools that are there, ways of thinking, patterns, structures, that when you become conscious of them and you start applying them to the world, you can do similar kind of work of interpretation or of deconstruction. Mm-hmm. Right? So if we start thinking about not just the doctrine of the covenant, but just the way covenant works in Scripture. And if we take that to be some representation of the fabric of reality, and then we start thinking about parts of reality in light of covenant, it yields an interesting perspective. It helps us better understand the way the world works and and maybe helps us better dismantle false interpretations of that reality. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's why he has the word narrative, un, the Bible's unfolding story in the, the subtitle. Mm-hmm. Because he wants to show that it's more than just a doctrine, right. but that it's how this idea or doctrine or reality unfolds throughout all of Scripture. Yeah, yeah. Like, as, again, analogy, I'll, I just think <laughs> in terms of analogy, but... You know, in the last episode, we talked about the way that a, a a Christian artist might use the ideas of his theology to inform creative work. He's not writing doctrine, right? right? He's not just recapitulating what the Bible teaches about this topic or that topic, but he's inspired by mm-hmm. that theological vision. So... Now imagine something similar happening, but in the realm of, let's say, philosophy or interpretation. It's, it's not, this book, a systematic theology book, but it is a sort of, what would happen if we distilled the ideas or the structures of the Bible's theology mm-hmm. and then applied them as interpretive tools yeah. to, to think about the human condition in the world and that sort of thing. And so it's a similar kind of idea. Like it's, it's a step removed from just uh, figuring out what the Bible teaches. It's trying to take what the Bible teaches and then use it to achieve this task of, of seeing things rightly. Yeah. Should we talk about diagonalization? Okay, yeah. So yeah. one of the things that you need to know, like if, if you were holding the book in your lap as I am and flipping through, it's full of these little diagrams. Yeah. And the diagrams, I have to say, as a visual artist, are not very engaging because it's, <laughs> it's basically two boxes, kind of a, a, a dualism there. Where you have one view and then another that seem to be diametrically opposed. But then there will be this little gray bar sort of going at a at an angle across them uh bridging between them let's say yeah yeah and and that is the diagonalization right yes. so so what 
what is the diagonalization and how is it not just splitting the difference between the either or, I guess, might be the way to ask the question. I think what he's getting at is this step of deconstruction or criticism is almost always going to identify a false dichotomy Mm -hmm. in culture where there are two ideas pitted against one another that don't necessarily need to be pitted against one another, but also the representation of each of those ideas is not wholly truthful. Yeah. That each one is getting at something true, but not completely true. And diagonalization is just this term that he wants to use of, of showing how each of them falls short in their understanding of that truth and pointing to the, the actual unity that could exist between them, which is a, I guess, like you said, a bridge, but he, he talks about it in terms of fulfillment or harmony between mm-hmm. these two, not just, not just like a squishy third middle way between love and justice, but a fulfillment of what love and justice really want in yeah. the first place. So, I mean, this is, let's say deconstruction 101 or something like that, but um, that tendency to divide things up into this, this dichotomy or a term that that people may have heard before binary right that that uh, knowledge is created by making these distinctions mm-hmm. and and that's true like if you look at like ramist logic or something like that there's there's a sense in which like if you've ever read puritans uh, the yeah. way puritans create knowledge you know that yeah. their version of bitcoin their their <laughs> knowledge is created by bifurcating you know yeah. by by distinguishing two concepts and then taking, you know, one of those concepts and splitting it into two again and, and dividing and dividing. And that idea of identifying those binaries is, is something that's seen as, um, let's say like a power play, you know, that you're imposing that relationship. And so the deconstructionist becomes interested in, in essentially like destroying those binaries, you know, and showing that, that this is false. And so, uh, I remember the example that that was supposed to elucidate it all for me um, in the classroom was uh, the 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 binary between life and death, and apparently Derrida sort of breaks this apart by going into the example of zombies, <laughs> you know, because the zombie is is dead, yes. but also living. <laughs> living dead you know and and i do remember thinking yeah but not real like the zombie's not real (laughs) so isn't that a problem right but but just so you get that idea like if you've ever heard people you know Mm -hmm. complain you're thinking in black and white terms you're you know binaries and we need to destroy these binaries um you know long before we were talking about destroying gender binaries there were all the other binaries that were being undermined and deconstructed and and that's the idea so he's he's taking that concept of these opposing binaries and rather than sort of splitting them apart diagonalization is, is showing a kind of a, I guess a both and kind of thing, you know, that there's an on the one hand and on the other. So, um, you know, he takes the idea of love and justice being opposed to one another. Mm-hmm. And then he calls that a false dichotomy but then he illustrates an unsatisfying compromise where we say, okay, well, we could have, you know, part justice, part love. 
And then his diagonalization has loveless justice on the one hand and justiceless love on the other. And the diagonal says abounding in love and faithfulness, right? A biblical concept that encompasses both love and justice where they're not opposed to one another. They're somehow together in this. And so that's kind of what the move is, is uh, taking things that seem to be at odds with one another or opposed to one another and then finding this this way of showing uh, like the larger connection, let's say. Yeah. That, that's probably not even close to doing justice <laughs> to, to what he's saying, but, but on, a, on a, a really simplistic level, let's call it that. It's interesting though, because my understanding is that Christians have been largely opposed to this idea of deconstruction and critical theory mm-hmm. because it, it wants to make everything gray. We want a nice black and white world where, you know, the good guys are good and the bad guys are bad, but critical theory steps in and says, wait a minute, it's way more complicated than that. You yeah. know, there are no just good guys, just bad guys. And it makes it all sort of troubled. And, and he addresses, he addresses this concern the concern that, well, doesn't this just kind of relativize things? Does mm-hmm. it make it seem like there's no real thing called love? There's no real thing called justice. And you're just going to give us a bunch of shades of gray in the middle. And he says, this is page 19. As we shall see, diagonalization is not a safe compromise option, but a positive and viable third way and most often a radical intervention, subverting accepted commonplaces and challenging us to reconsider our assumptions, leaving the initial dichotomized options appearing distinctly bland and and unappetizing by comparison. Yeah. Maybe one example that will relate, or some, some Christians will relate to, is the dichotomy between progressive and liberal mm-hmm. or conservative and, and, and liberal or whatever like that. I think a lot of Christians don't necessarily see themselves in one political party in America or another. And they, they, they sense that tension. And I, I think Watkin would say that tension you feel is good. Like you shouldn't just identify with one because then you start to identify yourself just in terms of the opposite group like oh i know i'm not those people over there right so yeah he says that diagonalization undercuts the tendency of dichotomized opposites to define themselves as the negative image of their enemy exactly yeah and i think yeah that to me is one of the appeals that all too often when we are challenged we essentially redefine ourselves in opposition to the challenge uh, this is one of those things that I often bring up when we talk about the so-called five points of Calvinism, right? And I want to say, you know, actually, there are a lot more than five points to Calvinism. <laughs> and whenever you think of it as, you know, a five-point system of doctrine, what you're actually doing is is taking the response to the criticism of the remonstrance mm-hmm. and treating it as the only thing that Calvinism consists of. So you're literally guilty of doing that, of taking that, that uh, 
enemy, that critique, and then reforming yourself as the negative image of it and forgetting there's a lot more to yourself or to reality than that. And so just as a habit of thought, I think it can be helpful to remind us that there's a a larger reality to stay in touch with. So maybe it would be useful to to look at one example. I mean, there's even more in the introduction that we haven't gotten at, but chapter one talks about the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And there was, there was one example I thought was, was kind of interesting there of diagonalization. So he begins with another dichotomy, which seems to be legit, but he wants to say, maybe this isn't as absolute as you think. So the dichotomy is kind of a meta- metaphysical one between ultimate reality as absolute, like the example of a, the prime mover on the one hand. And on the other hand, ultimate reality is personal. And the example he gives here is the Greek pantheon. And these two ideas seem to be intention. So you have an absolute unity on the one and a personal world on the other. And he says that the way, the, the way that the scriptures talk about God diagonalizes this because God is seen as absolute personality. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolute person was kind of a cool way of talking about it. absolute personality theism. And the cool application of this is he says that this actually helps us understand the relationship between the sciences and the arts mm-hmm. because the sciences are like, Oh yes, you know, we need that. We need that idea of an absolute unity behind all of reality. We have to assume that the order of the world is intelligible and, you know, rationality is baked into all these things, but personality, well, who cares about personality? You know, give me facts and data, but he says, well, not so fast. The arts, the humanities are interested in, in personality. They're interested in motives, you know, emotions in the human person, the soul, that sort of thing. But they don't necessarily need to be in tension with one another. If we see the world as created by an absolute personality, like the the biblical God. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a great example because, uh, Oftentimes, even in Christian theology, there is that tendency to err on one side or the other. You know, we can talk about the transcendence versus the eminence Mm -hmm. as a kind of occasion for this distinction between the absolute and the personal. You know, there's a a relationship there. I think if you look at uh, even, you know, Christian religion in the era of the Enlightenment, there's a sense in which people often talk about God as essentially an impersonal force, Mm -hmm. you know, that God is the great lawgiver or God is, you know, the, the, the clockmaker or whatever, but, but uncaused cause, right? Yeah. (laughs) All of these sort of very abstract ways to talk about God and maybe abstract isn't the word impersonal, right? And so they de-emphasize the personal, and you can totally understand why, because we associate 
the personal when it comes to the divine with a, a, a less powerful, all-encompassing, right? The Greek pantheon. They're basically big humans. They're just not as well-behaved, right? And so there's something yeah. about that that inherently seems less exalted to us. Even, I think, Socrates got that when he had to posit an idea of the holy that lived above the gods because the gods, as he understood them, were absolute personality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, No, sorry, they were just personality, not absolute <laughs> yeah, personality. Right. Watkin would correct me. But, <laughs> but so the, the point is that where our tendency is either to resolve the tension one way or the other, to lean into the abstract divine or the personal, highly personal God. In Christian theology, in the doctrine of the Trinity, we have both of these things, a sort of equally absolute state of affairs where the the personal isn't subsumed in the absolute or vice versa. Yeah. Right. So, so it's, it's both of these things. Yeah. I found this, particularly comforting because I work as a creative person in a very data driven field Mm. and, and digital marketing and websites. And I'm often pressed like, Hey Cameron, give me some data, give me some, some science for your decisions. Right. And I, and while I understand that sometimes it's very frustrating when I'm like, well, it just sounds nice or, you know, this is aesthetically pleasing, but Here's a passage from Watkin that I think summarizes up this first example. He says, most views of the world, most academic disciplines, and indeed most people overemphasize either the absolute, chaining themselves to a cold and human inflexible logic, or the personal, the personal, casting themselves adrift on the capricious and dangerous swell of emotion and intuition. Both these unbiblical emphases reflect a partial and lopsided view of reality. But for the Bible, there is no zero-sum game between the personal and the absolute, between order and creativity, between law and love, between the arts and the sciences. They are perfectly complementary in the absolute personal God. And later in this book, as we'll see, um, yeah, I'll just end it there. So they're perfectly complementary in the absolute personal God. And that's, that's just what you're getting at. So this is just one example. The rest of the book, I mean, he goes on and does this dozens of times with these, yes, not, not very aesthetically pleasing diagrams, <laughs> but, um, but, but I'm they, looking forward to it. They illustrate the point. Yes. So, and, and I think maybe you can get a flavor of what this project is all about, just in, in what Cameron was describing, because it, <laughs> By taking step-by-step, chapter-by-chapter, different aspects of the Bible's unfolding revelation, essentially what he's doing is he's constructing a way of seeing reality Mm -hmm. and showing how ideas that often live in tension in other philosophies actually make sense when viewed from a biblical philosophy, right? And so it is, again, it's, it's a... It's a philosophy derived from scripture. It's not it's not a one-to-one. Like he's he's got to do a little bit of work mm-hmm. to think about like what are the implications of what the Bible teaches and then how do you sort of apply those things? But but I think what's interesting about that is that it replicates something that we're all constantly doing as believers who study scripture and then seek to apply it to our lives. Like he's just modeling a way of thinking about the world that's biblically informed. 
right? That the Bible doesn't give every answer to every question, but it does give us tools for thinking about everything and, and arriving with some wisdom and, and good judgment at ways of, of looking at the world and its problems. So that's what intrigues me about the book. Here's what I don't know. What I don't know is if the promise of the first 50 pages or so is actually fulfilled in the course of the book. And I will say that there are moments as I'm reading what I've read so far where I think, yes, it is. And moments where I think I'm not sure. And mainly for me, that tracks along the lines of um, like what's fresh and new versus what's a familiar thing that I'm accustomed to reading in worldview books and, and perhaps have even written in worldview books. And so, um, that shouldn't be a problem. You know, I think obviously that just suggests that that some of what has been written before is good. Yeah. But the thing that excites me most is those connections that I haven't made or exactly. kind of the things that I'm like, ah, yes, this is exactly what I, what I needed. So um, I'll just say, let, let's say one last thing here. Um, as I read this and as I, I flip through you know, and just kind of dip in at one point or another. It's the kind of book I really dream of going through with other people. Um, Not necessarily to teach, although I do dream about that, but also just to kind of explore together. I think like uh, reading David Bentley Hart, uh, it's demanding, you know, like it, it presupposes a familiarity with things sometimes that uh, I would say this is more accessible than that, but uh, but still, you know that there's there's reading that if you haven't done, it might feel a little daunting. But I mean, imagine how fun it would be to just work through this book chapter by chapter and just think through like like uh, how does this change the way we think? How should it affect how we as a church talk about a lot of these things? Uh, I think that would be an exciting. Project. We're not saying we're going to do it starting next week. I'm just throwing it out there that it's one of those things that every time I see this book, I yeah. think, you know, what would make this really fun would be to read this in community. I agree completely. It sounds like a great summer book club to me. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, if, if we get enough listeners demanding it, yeah. Who knows what will happen? <laughs> yeah. Leave us a comment, everyone. Yes. If you want the book club. Yes. And and I will admit selfishly that, that suggesting things like that is also a way to force me to go back and finish <laughs> what I started. Yes. So, so hopefully that's been helpful. Um, you know, I, I promise we will sometimes recommend and discuss books we have actually finished. But yeah. I don't think it's a bad thing to acknowledge in the life of readers that... Uh, that oftentimes we've got books in progress that we're really interested in, but we haven't finished yet. Sometimes, as we saw last time, we, we give up and uh, all of that is okay. But, but anything that helps us develop a, a deeper understanding is good. And I think that biblical critical theory is one of those books that it's going to be around. And I think it's going to become a pretty standard text when it comes to worldview thinking in the church. So I hope outside the church as well. But uh, on that note, I'll just encourage anyone who's, who's interested to uh, grab a copy. And if you want to read it together, let us know. 
Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org. 